There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's something that was very heavy, um, not just the case, but everything involving the case, um, along with my suicide attempt, that... <sighs> There's a difference between letting things go and forgetting something. Um, so when someone tells you, well, just forget about it, well, it's not that simple. During the time that he was in jail in a way were easier than what it is now. Um, just because we're so anxious to pick up where we left off and it's a lot like welcome to right lane a podcast of the tampa bay times each week times reporter lane de gregory discusses her stories and answers your questions the focus is on craft my name is maria carrillo and i'm the enterprise editor at the times today we're going to discuss lane's most recent story a difficult piece about a man who was accused of sexually molesting a neighbor's four-year-old girl the topic what the hell did you do to my daughter? So, Lane, let's start with um, how it came to you, how you even got this idea. Um, there was a lawyer who I've worked with before who I was actually talking to about a story I'd done with him in the past. And he said, oh, my God, I got to go. Uh, the jury's about to come out with this verdict. And I said, well, what case are you working on? And he said, oh, it's a, a capital sexual battery case. And um, the very next day he called and he said, oh, my God, they acquitted him in less than two hours. And I was like, I've never heard of that before. I've never heard about someone being acquitted of sexual battery on a child. And uh, actually even taking to trial is kind of rare. We found out most people plea when charged with that. So I thought, if, you know, he said he would talk to his client and see if he was willing um, to let us write about what happens after the acquittal. So initially I was my, – my thought was like let's follow this guy who's been – accused of like the worst crime you can be accused of in America today and see how what happens to your life after you get acquitted. So um, many of the questions for this podcast were provided by Andrew Meacham, who is the Times theater critic and, um, and a narrative junkie. And I hope I can call you a junkie, Andy. But anyway, so um, we're going to start with some of his questions. Um, he says um, he, he was inter really interested in the ending of the story. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read the story yet, go back, get the get the link, and then read the story um, so I don't spoil it for you. But anyway, um, the resolution, he says, he, he wanted us to talk about that, um, what it is and isn't, he says. Um, he said he, from his point of view, he felt like the story was satisfying and he learned what he needed to know. Uh, but at the same time, he wonders whether people are comfortable with ambiguity, with an ending that sort of leaves you... Still wondering, I guess. So what do you think? Are you comfortable? You think readers are comfortable? I think, you know, as a writer, I always want something at the end that's going to feel like some sort of resolution one way or another, even if it's just to ask another question, you know. Mm -hmm. And if I was covering this from a traditional news reporter standard 
you know, standpoint, the ending would have been, oh, my God, he's acquitted, right? Like, that would have been right. no ambiguity there. That would have been the, the lead. The ju- yeah, the, or the jury <laughs> decides he didn't do this thing. Um, but I, we didn't know, you know, we didn't have an idea of what the ending was going to be when we started out. What, there wasn't a finish line for us. Um, it was just like, you know, what's going to happen next? And so when we sat down with them um, for the very first interview, I kind of asked them, like, three bullet points, like, what do you need to happen to get your life back? And it was like, go to school, move out of my parents' house because they'd had to sell their house to pay the lawyer um, and and get my, my life back together with my family. And so we kind of had then like little touchstones to look for, you know, like the, those were sort of the moments we were waiting for one or two or three of those things to happen that they felt like there was some progress made. You know? Yeah, we were that, that that those were uh, the the resolution for the family, what he was going for, what he right. was striving for. And then when he hit those milestones, I think what's apparent to the reader is this isn't going away that easily. Right. You're not going to, you know. I know people say it as a cliche, but you're not going to get back to normal because normal has changed now, right? He's moving forward, but he's definitely not erasing what happened. Right. Yeah. Um, so Andrew asks, and um, this is great because Andrew, as a as a as a fellow writer, but I think also as a fan of Lane's, he's he's really digging in here to the and and really found this story fascinating. He says, "So, what are the two or three most pressing questions you would have wanted to ask the mom who lodged the allegation on behalf of her daughter?" Yeah, I think to me that was the most frustrating part of the story. And I kind of knew it was going to happen, that the mother of the little girl wouldn't talk to me. Um, So it had to be a very one-sided story, you know. And I had to figure out how to say that to the readers, like, I'm not going to tell you both sides of the story. Because all I had from her was police reports and depositions and testimony during the trial. I didn't ever get to ask her. Um, I think I would have asked her why she called the cops so quickly. You know, this is a next-door neighbor that they've hung out with and and had picnics and barbecues with, and their kids have played together, and their kids have been alone together, and their kids have been caught kissing together, the four-year-olds. So there was a history there of the little boy and the little girl playing together, the the, the accused man's son. Um, And and I think I would have wanted to know, like, why do you go from zero to 80 and and call the cops in right away? Um, The little girl uh, told her mom late at night after the neighbor left that he had licked her um, and immediately the cops were there and there wasn't a chance to talk to the little boy or the brothers or you know to figure out really what had happened in the heat of the moment I, she just reacted and, and wanted to protect her daughter you know and uh, yeah so you would have been curious about what her initial reaction was and why did she consider the little boy did she go there first and then what what led her to the adult Right. right. And, and and did did she even entertain the possibility that it could have been the little boy and not the dad? Mm-hmm. You know. So Andy says you mentioned the emotional distance along with geographical while Austin was in the Navy between him and his son. And given what he seems to believe happened with the neighbor girl, did he express misgivings about choosing a term of service that forced him to be away for so long? Its virtues aside? He did. Yeah, he he um he seemed like one of those guys who kind of didn't know what he wanted to do uh, when he got out of high school. He kind of fluttered around a little bit and um, didn't think college was for him. And he he joined the Navy because one of his friends had been blown up in Afghanistan. So it was this like instantaneous moment of patriotism, like I could do something good for this country and, and honor my fallen friend. And I don't think he wasn't married to Jody at the time. You know, I don't think they were thinking about children at the time, but he kept 
re-enlisting. Like they would send them on a deployment and then they would say, oh, we'll give you another, you know, five, ten thousand dollars if you go on this next deployment. So I, th- I think it was it wasn't he had this big picture like I'm going to be away in the Navy for five years was like one thing led to another. And, another and he didn't and another. really know and, what he wanted to do later. Right. right? So. He didn't have a really a plan for after he got out of the Navy, you know, um, he moved Jody down here, his wife down here with his son because his parents were here. So he and his sister was here and he thought that they'd have some family to help. Um, but yeah, I think he re- he definitely expressed an awful lot of regret about not being there for his son and his wife for those years he was in the Navy. But proud of being a provider too. I mean, there was definitely that thing you could tell. He, you know, he, he was glad he'd been able to provide for them, but at what cost, right? You touched on this a little bit, but um, the question was, the question is, did you wrestle in the writing, maybe even the reporting, about not wanting to appear either accusatory against or cheerleading Austin? What kind of hedge did you construct to avoid doing either? Oh, that's a great question, Andrew. Thank you for asking that. Because, that, that, I mean, not being able to talk to the other side, it had to feel skewed toward being sympathetic to Austin. And I think my inclination always is to make my readers fall in love with my main subject. And so when I wrote the first draft of it, it was, oh, poor Austin. And, and oh, how could this have happened to him? And all these things he wanted and hoped for. And then I was like... I can't do that. I can't just make it about Austin as the victim because this whole other little girl and this it's, family and got so screwed murky. up. And it's, it's so, so murky. <laughs> and, and I remember talking to Eve, the photographer, several times of like, what if he did do it? You know, if he didn't do it, this is horrible that he's gone through all this. But a jury said he didn't do it. We don't know, you know, if he did. And so then there's this whole, even I had these long late night conversations of guilt about like, what if he did it? Are we like aggrandizing a, a sexual predator, you know, like, and we had to just kind of let it go and say, well, the jury acquitted him, and that's all we can know right now, you know. But, no, I, I, I could have made Austin, I wanted to make Austin a lot more sympathetic, and I, I feel like I held back a lot. Um, and and within that restraint, I think trying to also, like, okay, here's the stuff that that makes you doubt him. You put it in there, and you let it play out, and... And then let kind of the reader come to their own conclusion. I mean, right. and I think it was interesting because we had people read it in the office and people came to different conclusions. So, which right. to me felt good because then it felt like, okay, the story was done at a distance where people could kind of decide for themselves what things they were going to give importance to. Like what, what, what of what happened and what happened in the, in the days after, what, how they were going to weigh all that stuff. And, and I did keep thinking about um, the little girl, the ramifications to her, because right. I, I don't have anything about what happened to her as, in the midst of all this. And you got to know she's got to be damaged no matter whether who did this or didn't do this to her. There's a four-year-old being taken to a, a rape kit, you know, talking to the police, standing on a, a testimony in front of a courtroom of people. Like, yeah. how could she not be damaged, you know? Right. But without being able to talk to the mother... I couldn't give you that, like, you should be sympathetic to this family, too. You know what I mean? So the balance was very difficult. Um, Andy says, the suicide attempt felt like a sharp turn on a roller coaster, to which I would say to us, too. And he says, it compounds the mystery, at least temporarily. Can you talk about what his father said and why you ultimately left that input out of the story? Yeah, I, as a storyteller, I actually would have liked to just leave that whole part out because it was a really weird side trip to go down, but you couldn't not include that. Um, his dad spoke a lot about uh, PTSD and how he'd noticed that 
when Austin came back from the Navy, he was a different person um, and didn't want to talk about a lot of trauma that he'd seen. Yeah. Austin talked a lot about the other people in the Navy he knew who committed suicide. I think he had nine friends who he lost during five years to suicide. Um, and and it, it felt really far out of the narrative to, to go back and sit with the dad in the living room and have him talk about that, you know. So I, I had a whole bunch from the dad um, talking about that, but I kind of chose to put it more when Austin talked to a counselor about it because that fit in the chronology of the narrative a little bit better, you know. I, I think we could have totally done a scene with the dad. I just don't know where we would have put it, you know. Right, right. And also, you, I think, too close to the suicide, and it almost feels like we're making that the rationale for it or part of the rationale for it. And we can't know that. We don't know right. that. And he wasn't diag- – I mean, I got his uh, papers right. from his counselor. He wasn't diagnosed with PTSD. Right. Nobody so. – no, a doctor wasn't saying that to us either. Right. Saying that's part of what, what happened here. So, And Austin kind of downplayed it too. You know, I think his, his dad was finding justification for something he couldn't understand as well, you know. Uh, maybe similar or Austin's dad, but Andy says, can you address generally the razor that separates the interesting but not crucial from the story you want to write? I guess that, like, you know, it's interesting, but it doesn't make it in. Why, you know, that, that facing that choice. I think he mentioned to me the, um, the number on the locker, that I, I had yeah. them go to a, a storage That's, locker. And why did I put that in there, right? That was he, has a, he has another question about that specifically, but maybe they dovetail because what he's saying is he says he would have he pr- he probably would have added it, but he lacked the chutzpah to put it in. Um, not, he says, not that I don't see why it's there. It's like the movie camera, part of what the camera should be capturing in the scene. But because I'd be afraid the editor might say, why is that in there? Who cares what locker number it was? And reflexively leave it out. So actually, he's asking us both, why, you know, why, why do ancillary details matter in narrative writing? Um, he said to him, it was not a telling detail to the, to the degree of like his interest in the Bible and his faith. I agree. And, and I don't think that that detail did anything other than put you there looking at the number on the locker. And right. I mean, it exactly was the reason he said was like, I just want the readers to see what I'm seeing, you know, and mm-hmm. saying. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There in locker B3, whatever, is just more specific than the third locker on the left or whatever. You know, I I don't like numbers normally, um, but to me that was just kind of zooming in on something real specific. I I want my details, most of them, to have meaning in them, but sometimes it's just scene setting. You know, that that was me like just like finding a sign on the wall or something. Painting a picture, right? Just sort of yeah. I think reporters sometimes uh, writers trying to to create scenes sometimes overdo it, and then the detail feels like. It's not important. I think the nature of actually, and I didn't think about this to this degree when we were going through the story, but the nature of storage lockers are actually so um, uh, ubiquitous and they're like just plain and ordinary and you never know whose life is back in that storage locker. So to me, what it did is like, okay, it sort of brought some specificity to the scene and sort of like, okay, this, this is whose lives were back behind that number 
Um, but yeah, I come yeah. with us. That's yeah, what I wanted us. to say. Like, come yeah. with us behind this door, you know. Right. Um, but it's interesting what Andrew said, and, and I know we have different editors, but I, I would err on the side of putting the detail in and making you take it out rather than thinking, like, oh, is Maria going to ask me what it means? Because if you thought it didn't need to be there, I would have been fine letting it go. Right. But I, I want to put as many specific details as I can in there, like, um, and then let you figure it out. And she does. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering. <laughs> um, okay, and then he, uh, so when he was talking about the the interesting from the not crucial, then, then he has a question for me, and he says, Maria, are there any rules you go by to help decide things like that? I suspect the hard truth is no, but would like to hear the answer anyway. Is it a matter of cutting anything that takes the reader away from the heart of the story? And I think that is, I think that's always the challenge for us, is we pair away to what's most important, what you need to know. Not not what you maybe could enjoy knowing, but or might add some little something to it. But um, I don't know. I think we second guess that a lot as we go through a draft and then another draft and another draft. It's like, do we need this? Is this really helping? Is it adding to particularly to whatever we're trying to create? So in this story, we know we're walking away with a story that's going to leave the reader kind of wow in a muddle. Like this is a all you feel is like two families are shattered. Two families are shattered, and you don't. And even if you don't get at the truth, or you walk away with your own set of truth here, it's like it's such a mess. So you had all this other reporting that there's a lot of reporting that didn't make it into the story because it doesn't really speak to. It might speak. It, they feel a little bit like left turns. So I guess as an editor, that's what I'm looking for. If I feel like you're taking me, I'm going down a road, and if you're taking me off that road, um, then then I want to bring us back. And I think also one of the things we we worked through a lot, I, I struggle really hard writing about faith. Um, I, I think that's a really hard, again, the ambiguity of it and questioning about, you know, is, is this legit? And, and, and uh, Austin really felt like he was saved while he was in jail by reading the Bible and, and coming to terms with God. I don't know if that's legit or not. You know what I mean? And I think I had a lot more God and faith references in the first draft that you were like, a little God goes a long way. You know, we didn't need to keep hitting people over the head with every Bible verse that he stuck in his sock or every time he went to church. And it was there. You know, it was it was clearly a component of his recovery or his next rehabilitative journey or whatever he was on. But I think you helped me a lot in pairing back a, a bunch of the God stuff because every time I would ask him anything, he would come back to that. You know, I prayed on it. I, God led me there. It was this Bible verse. And it was like that it was it was overpowering. I, well, and it sort of feel like a cliche, honestly. How many people in jail or prison find find faith, right? Right. And and you can't help but feel a little um, skeptical about whether they really did or Is not. Is it legit? Yeah. So, um, okay. Then uh, Andy asked, for background or whatever reason, did you or were you tempted to interview friends of either household, Austin's buddies or people who know the mom, just to get a sense of how others perceive them socially? Or do you prefer to go by your own gut and avoid collecting observations from people who might have an obvious bias? Um, I did not reach out to any of the girl's family, the victim's family, once I realized that her sister actually emailed me back and said they weren't willing to talk. Um, so I felt like, okay, if I can't have the mom or the dad of this little girl, it seems far afield to go talk to her friends or neighbors. And we decided not to name them. And a little obnoxious so again, they're telling you, 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 you know, we want you to respect our privacy. Right. And, and, and they can't speak to what happened at all. They could maybe speak to who 
this woman was as a mom or what their family dynamics were like. But I did reach out to Austin's family. Austin didn't really have any friends here because uh, he'd been away in the Navy for so so long. Um, but I interviewed his sister and his brother-in-law and his brother and his mom and his dad. So I, I spent some time, you know, with the family. And that all boiled down to a couple paragraphs, really. We left a lot of that out. We did, but the, I think the most... Um, the best get out of that was his sister, who kind of played. She she was able to represent something I think that I wanted the readers to hear, which was kind of like, "Are you going to get this kid counseling?" You know, are, are, they ended up. Well, I'm going to spoil my story here, but <laughs> his his son, you know, ended up being the one that they said, "Oh, maybe he did this to the little girl." And uh, there was a lot of concern from me and Eve, even though we were reporting this. Like, are they getting this kid any help? Is he talking to anybody? But you know, as a writer, we can't really bring that up and and shake a finger. But the sister was wonderful to represent that. Right. Um, okay, another one from Andrew. What does the baptism ending mean to you? Uh, to him, it felt like the perfect capstone, which is equally weighted by at least two questions. Did he or didn't he? And is this whole religious journey about a sinner getting redemption or a suffering soul getting relief from persecution? He said you could interpret it either way. I think it's it. both. Yeah, yeah. And Andrew's a theater critic. He sees these like wonderful universal like, yeah. themes too. Like, no, I think it was both, right? I, well, you could interpret it either way. Right. And he, he it clearly was going to be, to them, a new beginning. So the end, the end of this horrible ordeal and the beginning of this new life they wanted to have together. So that was enough for me. You know, if that's what that symbolizes for them, it's, of course, a wonderful scene to write and photograph or in the Gulf of Mexico on a beautiful sunny afternoon. And, and so it was a, a lovely scene. Um, but we didn't write much about the prayers leading up to that and the party they had and what everybody was saying to them. You know, it was just kind of like I just wanted that one moment of, of him being immersed. And... I couldn't hear them um, out in the water, and the photographer wanted me to stay out of the way, so I couldn't hear what they were saying. And at first, I was really mad about that. And, and then I asked Austin, you know, what, what did you do out there? I, I could see him. I could see the, the minister sort of holding Austin, his hand behind Austin's back, and Austin going back in the water and holding his nose. He goes, I just held my nose and held my breath. And I was like, oh, he held his breath. That's a perfect ending. Like, it felt like a great ending because you don't know what's going to happen. There's, like, a tension there, but there's also this release of, like, going under the water. And so I just – I really like that as an ending. I love that it's um, – yeah, you feel there's there's this milestone. There's this moment that he's reached. But I feel like you walk away from the story thinking this isn't over. It's not over. None of this is over. Nope. This is going to hang over everybody for a long, long time. So Absolutely. Um, I, we probably should uh, – one of the things we debated um, was to name the we – obviously, we're not going to name the little girl, but one of the things we debated was whether to name the little boy. And we didn't by name. Um, you know, you the family was willing to let us, and um, I don't know. I said some people might say, well, that's – you know, why are you is patronizing for us to, to act like, you know, we, we have all the answers or we're smarter than they are. But um, we didn't really want it to come back. Um, you know, if this was if it was two children doing this, we didn't want it to come back on either of them. Right. Um, and we're both mothers. And I mean, I was thinking about yeah. my kid reading something that I gave him gave some stranger permission to put in the paper when he was little. Right. And now he's 18, 19 years old and his girlfriend's Googling him. And holy cow, you yeah. know, I, I didn't think yeah. it would be fair to that little guy um, to do that down the road. Um, talk a little bit about, so that's the end of, of uh, Andrew's questions, and thank you again, Andrew. 
Um, talk a little bit about the response you got from people, yes. uh, good and bad. Yeah, it was really interesting because the, the initial response, like right when it went up online, you know, the, the, the comments online were so different than the emails people sent me. It was a, it would be a great like thesis project for someone to look at or whatever because a lot of the comments initially online were very negative. Um, in fact, the one I, I think I sent you through tears that right away was this woman who was being like, why the hell did you even write this story? Why, why is this, and why did we use the word hell in the headline? Somebody was mad about profanity using the word hell in a headline. But, you know, being able to justify, like, why did we tell this story, I think was the first roadblock, not roadblock, but the first dodgeball somebody threw at us. You know what I mean? And so I know you and I had long conversation about that. Like, should we have done this story at all? And and I think the takeaway was, yeah. Um, one thing we didn't have early on that I wish I'd asked for, because it ended up being harder than we thought, was trying to get some statistics about how unusual this is. Like, how many people accused of a capital sex crime go to trial, and then how many people are actually acquitted. And thank you, Connie Humberg, for crunching all these crazy numbers from the Office of the Courts for the state of Florida and finding out that less than 3% of the people do. So then that that helped me justify it a bit, too. This is so rare that this happens. And we and I also feel like, you know, as a, a news outlet, there's this responsibility where we covered his arrest. We put his face in the paper. His face was on the TV saying that this nice, young, attractive young man had been accused of this horrible, horrible crime. We didn't cover the trial. Right. We didn't write about him being acquitted. And I think... I know why, because of manpower and, and you know, space limitations or, or whatever, but I don't think that's fair. You know, I think if we're going to say somebody is, is accused of something, we need to write about the disposition or the outcome of it in some someplace. And, of course, know? that was part of their motivation because he, you know, otherwise when you Google his name, it's still out there without right. any, any explanation, but... I mean, I think, yeah, I think one of our conversations is like, it's it's a compelling story. I mean, do we tell... Do we tell it because it's just a compelling story? And yes, it's yucky and murky and there's all kinds of like, um, you know, he said, she said. Um, but yes, it's unusual. And just because a story is difficult or complicated, does that mean we don't do it? If we back away? I mean, I think um, it got an amazing amount of traffic. I think people were really intrigued. I think people, obviously, they read to the end. They uh, And then the email response you got was... You know, you got to mix. I, I think you've got a mix of people who kind of really still don't know what to believe. Yeah. But. And then a lot of people actually, I mean, as the comments went online, too, a lot of people felt sorry for him. A lot of people felt like, geez, this guy has been railroaded and his whole life has been ruined. And maybe we're too quick as a society to believe it. I had a lot of emails about um, uh, coerced memory. You know, right. like, like, did this little girl really remember things the way she said? Or was it because what her mother was asking or the police were asking or her grandfather was telling her? Right. So a lot of people interested in that, like, false accusation of a little kid. Right. Type people, You know, there had been study after study done on that. And I think that was intriguing to a lot of people. The other thing, I, I, I hate our comments, and I really I don't like reading them. But I think it's fascinating how they start spanking each other after a little while. <laughs> you know, it'll be like somebody who just mouths off about, it was the worst article I ever read why did you bother doing this and the next reporter on there's like oh my god I'm, I can't, I'm so happy you wrote this article I've never read an article like this we need to know things like this you know so they, they take each other to task which is really I think fun and interesting that our readers like call each other out on stuff like that you know I think too I, I mean you and I've been in this business for 30 years I've never read a story like that and to right. me that's a bar at some, of some point like have I read this story before nope right <laughs> yeah exactly 
Um, so you guys jump in. Um, we'll put the link on the podcast. Check it out. Uh, if you have a question for Lane about this story or any other, uh, you want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.